Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington, in for Jordan Morey as your host this week. The end of June is always a busy time in the legal community, both in Indiana and across the country. That means we have a lot of news to cover in today's episode. So much so that we actually have two extended interviews this week, both discussing the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark Dobbs decision overturning the federal right to an abortion. So let's get started. Today is Wednesday, June 29th, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start with a brief overview of the Dobbs decision, which focuses on a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. In upholding that law, the court's conservative justices overturned the landmark abortion decisions in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, sending the question of the legality of abortion to the states. Chief Justice John Roberts was part of the majority that upheld the Mississippi law, although he argued that the court could have ruled for Mississippi without overturning Roe. Scholars predict that abortion could be banned or severely restricted in about half of the states now. Abortion is still currently legal in Indiana, although the Republican-led General Assembly is expected to act soon to restrict abortion access in the Hoosier state. We'll talk more about Dobbs and its implications in our extended interviews and in our July 6 print issue, so come back to us for continued coverage. Some other Supreme Court news of note, as reported by the Associated Press, The conservative majority also struck down a New York gun law requiring New Yorkers to show proper cause to obtain a license to carry a gun in public. That's the court's first major Second Amendment case in more than a decade. Also, the justices recently ruled that law enforcement can't be sued for violating the Fifth Amendment rights of criminal suspects by failing to provide a Miranda warning before questioning a suspect. And in First Amendment news, the conservative majority ruled in favor of a Washington high school football coach who wants to pray on the field after games. The high court has ruled on several other high-profile issues in just the last two weeks. Visit our website for full coverage of the notable decisions. The Indiana Supreme Court has also been busy as it prepares for its summer opinion slowdown, but the state justices haven't been unanimous in all of their recent rulings. Two decisions handed down last week show differing viewpoints on the court. First, in the case of church versus state, the court reinstated a law that prohibits accused sex offenders from taking the depositions of their alleged victims. The Court of Appeals had struck down that law on the grounds that it conflicted with the Indiana trial rules, but the justices disagreed. All five justices concurred in the ultimate result that the defendant in the case could not depose his alleged victim. But Justice Christopher Goff dissented from the finding that the law doesn't conflict with the trial rules. He wrote separately that, quote, Had the measure advanced a policy not conducive to our own, I likely would have come to a contrary conclusion, end quote. Goff also dissented from another decision last week involving child sexual abuse. In that case, State v. Newcomb, the majority of Justices Jeffrey Slaughter and Stephen David and Chief Justice Loretta Rush determined that neither the juvenile court nor the adult criminal court has jurisdiction over a man who allegedly molested his cousin while both the defendant and the alleged victim were minors. The defendant was 22 years old before he was criminally charged for the alleged molestation, but the trial court declined to allow the state to proceed with the criminal charges because he was younger than 18 at the time of the alleged incident. And under the court's 2020 decision in DP versus state, juvenile courts lack jurisdiction over delinquency petitions once the accused is 21. According to the majority, that situation creates a jurisdictional gap that only the legislature can close. Both Goff and Justice Mark Massa dissented, arguing the General Assembly could not have intended for alleged child molesters to avoid court. 
Goff argued criminal courts should have discretion over whether to exercise their jurisdiction in a case involving an alleged offender who has aged out of the juvenile system. You can read the full decisions in each of these cases by searching for the case names on our website. Staying in the courts, we have some sad news to report from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Michael Kane died June 16th at 83 years old. Judge Kane had served on the Seventh Circuit bench since 1987 when he was nominated by President Ronald Reagan. Before that, he served as judge of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana and as the Jasper Circuit Court judge. He graduated from the Indiana University Maurer School of Law in 1968 and worked in private practice before taking the bench in Jasper County in 1972. Retired Judge John Tinder served with Kane on the Seventh Circuit and described him as a, quote, terrific colleague who was hardworking, thoughtful, a good listener, and a careful writer, end quote. Judge James Ayler of the Northern Indiana Bankruptcy Court clerked for Kane in the late 90s. Ayler says the late judge was his hero, and he recalled Kane having a particular fondness for Cajun meatloaf. Kane is survived by his wife, Judith Ann, and his two daughters. Now I'm going to hand it over to Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe, who has an update on landmark federal immigration legislation. Katie? Ten years ago, an Obama-era program went into effect that prevented hundreds of thousands of young immigrants who were brought into the U.S. as children from deportation. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals marked its 10th anniversary on June 15th. Since President Barack Obama rolled out the program in 2012, more than 830,000 undocumented individuals who came to America when they were children have received administrative relief that protects them from deportation and allows them to work, according to the Center for American Progress. The program requires that DACA recipients renew their status and work permits every two years at a cost of $495. Also, recipients must be enrolled in or have graduated from high school, earned a GED, or have been honorably discharged from the military. Additionally, they cannot have any felony or certain misdemeanor convictions, among other requirements. Looking back on the past decade, Indiana immigration attorneys aren't so sure that 10 years of DACA is something to celebrate. It brings a lot of emotions to me, so I can imagine just how much emotion it brings to each one of my clients and everybody else that has DACA. That's Cecilia Monterosa, a South Bend attorney with the Monterosa Law Group. She says she's equally happy and frustrated that DACA has now been available for 10 years. These are adults. They they have a life. They've made a life here. They've relied on this continued renewal for every two years. And every two years and every day, I'm sure that it's always in the back of their mind, right? DACA is temporary. Since its inception in June 2012, the program has faced numerous court challenges. The Trump administration announced it was ending the program in September 2017, but the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2020 that the administration hadn't ended the program properly. Today, DACA faces another challenge regarding its legality in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Some immigration attorneys say they're ready for the back and forth to be over. Merrillville attorney Alfredo Estrada says he's disappointed that DACA recipients have been, in his view, played like a game for politics. I guess we shouldn't celebrate the anniversary. I think us celebrating a 10th year of DACA is embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing, and every member of Congress could share the blame in the fact that they don't have the will to do what's right on something that's proven to be successful. When DACA was announced, South Bend attorney and adjunct law professor Rudy Monterosa remembers feeling joy. A decade later, he says he still believes the law was a great thing for many people. 
And yet, despite the data and despite the fact that you have proof, right? We have people that are doctors. We have people that are lawyers. We have people that are heading up nonprofit organizations. Like the proof is there that these are people that are contributing to the society, that are positive members of our community. And yet we, we still can't find the gumption to pass at least the DREAM Act, but at, at, at most immigration reform. Stay tuned as we follow the legal battle over DACA. Back to you, Olivia. Thanks, Katie. As we wrap up today's headlines, I want to give you an update on a topic that's dominated recent headlines across Indiana. As you likely remember, the Indiana legislature recently overrode the veto of a bill that bans transgender girls from participating in girls' sports at Indiana's K-12 schools. That law is set to take effect this Friday, July 1st. But that's not the only issue related to trans kids happening right now. Last week, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita filed an amicus brief in favor of the Martinsville School District which is appealing an injunction requiring it to allow a transgender middle schooler to use the restrooms that align with his gender identity. The Martinsville case is up at the Seventh Circuit, but just a few days ago, the Indiana Southern District Court ordered the Vigo County School Corporation to allow two transgender students to use the facilities that align with their male gender identities. The decision in the Vigo County case implied that the Seventh Circuit's decision in the Martinsville case could influence the fate of the Vigo County litigation. The big question in those two cases, whether Title IX includes protections based on gender identity rather than just biological sex. We'll keep an eye on both of those cases and provide updates as the courts rule. Lastly, a quick preview of a story we're working on for the July 6th issue of Indiana Lawyer. The Indiana Supreme Court recently handed down a rule amendment lifting limits on the number of distance education hours lawyers and judges can record to count toward their CLE and CJE requirements. The court had previously lifted limits on distance education during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, but the rule amendment has made those changes permanent. Jordan is working on a story about what that change means for continuing legal education in Indiana. Pick up the July 6th issue to learn more. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit theindianalawyer.com to learn more about any of these headlines or any other happenings in the Hoosier legal field. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear from Notre Dame law professor Richard Garnett and IU Mauer law professor Steve Sanders, who will discuss the recent Dobbs ruling. Taft. Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For part one of our Dobbs podcast coverage, we have Professor Rick Garnett, founding director of Notre Dame Law School's program on church, state, and society. Rick, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. As some brief background, Garnett has served on the Notre Dame Task Force on Catholic Education, is a fellow of the university's Institute for Educational Initiatives, and consults regularly with the Alliance for Catholic Education. Garnett clerked for U.S. Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist uh, during the court's 1996 term, and also for Richard S. Arnold, the late Chief Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Garnett joined the faculty at Notre Dame in 1999 after practicing law in Washington, D.C. Regarding Dobbs, uh, Garnett co-authored an amicus brief with the law firm Cooper and Kirk in Washington, D.C. in support of overturning Roe. Their brief was submitted by the Washington, D.C.-based Ethics and Public Policy Center. To start, why did you decide to participate uh, in writing an amicus brief for this case, 
And uh, how many other abortion-related cases have you written briefs for? Yeah, so in, in this case, what was interesting to me, um, you know, you were kind enough to mention that I, I clerked for the, the late Chief Justice uh, back in the 90s. And it seemed to me that this case was really the uh, a culmination of a lot of themes that, that Rehnquist had developed, uh, beginning really with his own dissent in Roe versus Wade, and then running through his opinion in the assisted suicide case, uh, the 1997 decision in, in Glucksburg, which uh, people who've read the Dobbs opinion know uh, figured pretty large in the majority's analysis. So my thinking was that um, it, would, it would be useful to the court just to lay out an argument that was really grounded in the work of uh, the late Chief Justice Rehnquist. Um, and that was the structure of the, the brief that we filed. We basically two key points, or what we thought were key points. One was to suggest that, that Roe and Casey were incorrectly decided as an original matter. And then two, um, while acknowledging the importance of stare decisis and of precedent, uh, trying to make the case you know, within the confines of the court's stare decisis jurisprudence that uh, it was appropriate uh, in Dobbs to, um, rather than to distinguish or uh, reinvent, but instead just to overrule uh, those earlier cases. Um, I, as to what, how many I've done in the past, most of my amicus work actually is in the First Amendment area. So I'm not totally sure how many, I, I think I did a brief back in 2007 in the partial birth abortion case, but I don't, I don't remember for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you kind of touched on a little bit, but have the arguments for eliminating Roe really changed over the last 50 years uh, in your opinion? And why do you think the court finally decided to overturn them now? Yeah, I think there's been some relevant legal changes. I mean, um, uh, so in the, in the first place, just the court's approach to unenumerated rights is different now than it was in the early 70s. And that's in large part, I think, because of uh, opinions like Rehnquist's Glucksburg opinion. Um, the, the current court, and really the court for the last 20 years, has been more focused on uh, making sure that any unenumerated rights are uh, connected to historical practice and tradition. And I think in the early 70s, the justices didn't, didn't think as much about that. Uh, a second thing is that we just have evidence, or people on my side would say that there's evidence, that um, the Roe and Casey regimes just haven't worked very well in terms of providing guidelines to lower courts in terms of um, uh, resolving you know, political disputes. They, they're, they're as heated as ever. And then a the third thing I'd I notice, I guess, is just I think we have more data than we had in 1973 about um, uh, the development of the prenatal child, about the um, uh, nature of the abortion debate in our politics. And those are factors that it seems to me the justices were were taking into account. So I don't I don't read the Dobbs majority as um, as disregarding the importance of precedent, I, I tend to think that it is important for courts to uh, to build organically on, on past decisions. But, um, you know, nobody thinks stare decisis is an absolute command. And I, in my opinion, uh, this was a case where it was appropriate to to overrule the, the past precedents and to sort of admit the mistake if one thinks Rowan Casey were mistakes, as I do. Mm -hmm. Do you think the opinion leaves any uh, questions kind of unanswered? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, this um, 
this Dobbs decision does not get the courts entirely out of the abortion regulation business. I mean, the, the, the takeaway from Dobbs is that going forward, uh, political bodies may regulate abortion and those regulations are subjected to the standard rational basis test. Um, how that rational basis test will be applied remains to be seen. Um, and there are really interesting questions that we're going to confront having to do with things like um, the uh, regulation of uh, abortion causing drugs and the extent to which uh, federal uh, approval of certain uh, uh, pharmaceuticals can preempt state law. I think there'll be interesting and complicated litigation about sort of uh, the right to travel and about uh, the interstate reach of judgments. Um, I think some of some states abortion laws will be challenged on on vagueness grounds. Obviously, uh, any any regulation has to the due process clause requires that all um, uh, regulations have to satisfy the no vagueness rule and, and Dobbs doesn't change that. Um, so those are just a few of the things that I think are uh, coming down the down the pike. Mm-hmm. Justice Thomas suggests in his concurrence uh, that the court should revisit substantial due process. Uh, many Americans are concerned that uh, other rights could be in jeopardy. Do you think this is a legitimate concern? And do you think it's noteworthy that some of the other justices didn't really touch on maybe some of the topics that Thomas, Thomas uh, suggested? Yeah, well, Justice Thomas has a longstanding view that um, substantive due process is a flawed theory and that the appropriate way to think about unenumerated rights is by thinking in terms of the privileges and immunities clause. So I think there's been some mischaracterization of his position uh, in the press. He, he didn't suggest in his opinion that, um, that all these other unenumerated rights should be themselves discarded. I think instead what he, what he was proposing was that we should rethink all of our unenumerated rights cases and frame them instead as, as he thinks they should be framed as, as privileges and immunities clauses uh, cases. And as you pointed out, you know, it. Um, my sense is that the Justice Alito opinion was pretty careful to say that uh, the arguments about the right to abortion are different, most obviously because, at least according to the pro-life side, they they involve harm to a third party. Um, and I think Justice Kavanaugh's opinion was a pretty clear signal that um, he, and we can presume a lot of the other justices, is not interested in relitigating uh, the other unenumerated rights cases. Um, so I, I, I never want to tell anybody that they're being unreasonable for being concerned about anything, but I, I do think that some of the press coverage of Thomas's opinion has, has missed the legal point that he's making. Sure. Uh, some have argued the justice's religious beliefs have played into this decision. Uh, do you think that's true and, and, and should be a concern? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, um, I'm, I'm troubled by the suggestion that I've seen uh, in some of the commentary, and this goes back for a while, uh, by the suggestion that somehow it's inappropriate to have, you know, quote unquote, too many Catholic judges or that Catholic judges can't be trusted to do their best to follow the law, that they're simply imposing uh, Catholic moral doctrine. I think the charge is, is unfair and, and really, um, in some instances, uh, bigoted. Um, obviously, all human beings are human beings, and we all come to our work, and this is true of judges as well, with um, uh, background beliefs, and we've been formed by those beliefs, and, you know, no human beings are robots, but I don't think there's any basis for the argument that the Catholic justices are somehow uh, 
um, especially prone uh, to being distracted by their personal beliefs. Um, and, you know, at least the, the pro-life side would argue that um, the Catholicism or Christianity or any other religion has nothing to say about the question of what the constitution requires. The justices weren't asked to decide what our abortion laws should be. They weren't asked to decide whether abortion is immoral or not. Obviously people disagree about those questions. Um, they were asked to decide whether, you know, the constitution takes the issue away from legislatures. And, you know, the, there's no Catholic catechism teaching on, on the separation of powers or on, on what the US constitution in particular says. So I, um, this is a long-winded way of saying that I, I think that charge is a bit of a distraction and, and probably uh, unfair. Mm -hmm. uh, polls indicate most Americans are in favor of abortion rights. Um, given that, will Dobbs negatively affect public perception of the court, do you think? Um, and should the court be concerned about that? Yeah, uh, I, think the, I think the polling question is a little more complicated. Um, okay. I think most Americans support abortion regulations that the Roe Casey regime did not permit. Just most Americans didn't know that. So when you actually get a little more nuanced about what it is that Americans think, they tend to support, um, much like we have in, in a lot of the European countries, um, an approach that permits some abortions, but regulates it um, considerably more than, than Roe permitted. And what the Dobbs case will do is permit legislatures to actually follow public opinion. Uh, for years, um, our abortion law hasn't reflected public opinion because Roe and Casey prevented it. So I don't, I think what we're gonna see is a, different states taking different approaches. Obviously, New York and California will continue to be very abortion permissive and probably some other states, or what we know some other states will take a more restrictive view. Um, but I think it's important to realize that the, the Dobbs decision in a sense, um, gives the green light to democracy, gives the green light to allowing people to select the, the resolution of this difficult question in the way that, um, that complies with, with their beliefs rather than the beliefs of the justices in Roe. In terms of perceptions about the court, I, I do worry that um, a lot of Americans will, um, in part because I think they're being misinformed about what this case does. You know, they're told that Dobbs bans abortion, which of course it doesn't do. Uh, I do worry that there'll be a perception in some quarters that the Supreme Court's just a legislature, that it's just a political body, that, you know, it um, it just makes decisions on a partisan basis. I don't think that's true. I, I worked there 25 years ago. That wasn't what I observed. Um, obviously, uh, people care about the composition of the Supreme Court and, and the the court does become a political issue, but I still have maybe the, the idealistic view that the justices are, are doing law and not just politics. But it, it is important in our system that people believe that the court um, is a judicial body and not a, a, not a political one. And so I do think it's important that the court does what it can to help encourage people in that belief. My own view is that the damage to the court's reputation is more severe from cases like Roe, where the court takes an issue away from the people. And it seems to me that a decision like Dobbs, which returns an issue to the people, should actually in, um, uh, make people feel better about, about the court. Um, I know you don't have a crystal ball and you kind of touched on this a little bit, um, but what are some of the most common types of laws you think we'll see in some of these Republican uh, states regarding abortion? Yeah, I think um, 
uh, so again, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and, and not a uh, pundit, so I'm, my predictions probably aren't worth very much. But I think we have good reason for thinking that in a number of the more, um, for lack of a better word, uh, conservative states, you will see legislative regulations uh, of abortion, certainly um, uh, limiting abortions after a time period like 12 to 15 weeks. Uh, the, the Mississippi law was 15 weeks. Um, some states will ban it earlier. Um, I would, I would, I feel pretty confident that any regulations of abortion will include um, various exceptions for the uh, life and health of the mother. And my sense is that um, very few, in fact, I suspect none of the regulations will um, will be directed at women. They'll be directed at providers. Uh, well, also the, the trickier thing is going to be efforts to regulate the transportation or the mailing or the receipt of um, abortion drugs from out of state. I, I'm genuinely uncertain as to how that's going to play out because, you know, a very large number of abortions today are done via um, chemical means. And uh, that obviously states are going to want to regulate that, but that'll prove more difficult than regulating abortion that takes place in uh, facilities. What is something attorneys and academics should uh, know about this opinion that they might not be thinking about? <laughs> That's a great question. I think you've highlighted uh, some of it already. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is that it's, it's, it's important just for lawyers and for everybody to understand that the upshot of Dobbs is not that the court has regulated abortion or the court has said anything about abortion. The court has simply lifted the previous um, Kind of one-size-fits-all regime that Roe and Casey imposed. So the the Dobbs case gives the issue back to politics, and people who feel strongly about the issue remain free to advocate on the issue, to uh, try to persuade their fellow citizens to adopt their point of view, and to um, uh, get laws passed that that they believe uh, are appropriate. So I think you know, nutshell version, Dobbs should be seen as a democracy-enhancing. Uh, decision. And then the second thing, and you also hit on this, is that um, uh, although Roe and Casey were overruled and the court thought that uh, the court decided that the right to abortion is not one of the enumerated rights that the Constitution protects, the decision does not um, call into question other precedents involving different unenumerated, un, uh, sorry, unenumerated rights that have been recognized uh, in various cases, such as, you know, the right to marry or the right to educate your own children and so on. That'll do it for part one of our Dobbs podcast coverage. Thanks again to Professor Rick Garnett, uh, the founding director of Notre Dame Law School's program on church, state, and society. Be sure to stick around for part two. For part two of our Dobbs coverage on the podcast, we have Indiana University Mauer School of Law professor Steve Sanders on with us today. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. I'm happy to do it, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Sanders teaches constitutional law, family law, constitutional litigation, conflict of laws, and uh, many other things. Uh, at Maurer. Uh, his scholarship focuses on questions arising out of the 14th Amendment's guarantees of equal protection and due process, with a special focus on issues affecting LBGTQ persons and same-sex couples. Uh, Sanders practiced for four years with the Supreme Court and Appellate Litigation Group at Meyer Brown LLP in Chicago, where he became the firm's most junior attorney to present a U.S. Supreme Court argument in a paid client matter. Uh, in addition to all of your scholarship and teaching, Sanders has participated in groundbreaking litigation uh, on behalf of the Human Rights Campaign 
He co-authored an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in Obergefell uh, v. Hodges, uh, 2015, which established nationwide marriage equality for gays and lesbians. Uh, a case he litigated in the Indiana Court of Appeals in 2013 led to the first published opinion by any court in the United States holding that a spouse's gender transition did not affect the validity of an existing marriage. Uh, he has represented the ACLU, the American Association of University Professors, and groups of scholars and scientists uh, in the Supreme Court, two federal court of appeals, and three state Supreme Courts. Now, uh, looking at Dobbs, uh, to begin with, what did you think of the revised version of uh, the opinion, and did anything uh, stick out to you compared to the draft? It really didn't. I think most people who've studied the two uh, the two documents pretty carefully um, uh, didn't detect any major changes. The, the major changes are the uh, uh, the final version has responses to the dissenting opinion, and and I think some responses to uh, some to some of the concurring opinions as well. I was actually a little surprised. I'm one of those people who thought there was a, not likely, but at least a possibility that after the leak of the draft, um, uh, not so much that some of the justices who had tentatively joined Justice Alito's majority would be spooked, but that they would find his language um, too harsh, too categorical, that they might think, uh, that they, they might have been tempted to uh, gravitate or defect over to the side of an approach such as Chief Justice Roberts took which was to uphold Mississippi's law, but not to jettison Roe altogether. Of course, that didn't happen. And, and so maybe that, that did make me a little surprised at how little had changed in, in the sort of hard-edged language and the, just the, the, the categorical certainty of the opinion between the, uh, the, the first draft, which is what was leaked, and the final draft. Mm -hmm. um, arguments have been made for the last 50 years. Uh you know, regarding abortion. Um, constitutionally speaking, were there any new arguments that you saw um, in this opinion, though? No. Uh, I, I mean, if you understand sort of the, 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 the constitutional interpretive approach of Justice Alito and Thomas and Kavanaugh, I, I can't say it was a surprise. Look, I'm, you know, one of those people who's perfectly willing to admit that Roe itself was very thinly reasoned, that it was essentially a product of judicial activism. I wouldn't necessarily say liberal judicial activism because it was joined by uh, some conservative justices who had been appointed by Richard Nixon, but it was, it, was, it was essentially judicial legislation. It was like, well, you know, we think that the right of privacy encompasses a woman's right to an abortion, and that was about it. And so in one sense, you know, Dobbs is a politically activist conservative opinion overturning an activist thinly reasoned um, opinion that progressives liked. Um, the difference, I think, is that Roe in the almost 50 years it was law had become embedded in American society, and I think that changes its status. If you believe, like I do, that constitutional law is a sort of ongoing dialogue between the court and the larger society and culture, then it should have given the court pause, even if, you know, we can be, and, and my con law students, even the ones most committed to reproductive choice, you know, would admit when we read the opinion, this is pretty thinly reasoned. I, I don't really understand. It just seems like the court is saying this is so, okay, you know, again, be that as it may, 
it's become a settled part of our law. Women and have shaped their lives around it. It has been well accepted. Public opinion has been very stable. 85% of Americans um, support abortion access either under all circumstances or at least under some circumstances. Only 13% want to see it outlawed altogether. Basically, the court's abortion jurisprudence from Roe through Casey to the present had given Americans the law that they wanted on abortion. And, and to me, it is a very, it's a dangerous thing for the court to repudiate such a, uh, what I would interpret as a, a solid and stable social consensus on the question that, um, you know, for all its faults as a piece of legal reasoning, Roe has become an established, accepted um, a, a part of our constitutional landscape. That I, is what I think the majority opinion simply refuse to acknowledge because it doesn't comport with their style of constitutional interpretation. Justice Thomas suggests in his concurrence that the court should uh, revisit substantive uh, due process. Do you think uh, gay marriage is in danger of becoming illegal again or, or other uh, rights could potentially be, um, you know, addressed? So on same-sex marriage specifically, um, I, 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 I mean, what I think we will see is a lot of mischief. I think we will see uh, a lot of efforts in at least red states to um, uh, to do things, maybe not a frontal assault on the recognition of same-sex marriage itself, but you know, to try to get away, they'll be re-emboldened to do things like refusing to uh, treat birth certificates or parentage for same-sex couples in the way they're treated for opposite-sex couples, or say that, well, uh, heterosexual couples get one set of benefits with marriage and same-sex couples get another. You know, I think we may see things like that. Um, Justice Thomas has always been proud to sort of be off on his own project to be the lone wolf. I don't see the court accepting his invitation anytime soon. Uh, that's not to say I think the majority is persuasive in, in saying, well, abortion's just different because it involves a life. That explains why it's different politically. It doesn't explain, if you get into the weeds of the 14th Amendment, why it's different doctrinally. But anyway, um, I, I on, on same-sex marriage in particular, um, I, I think it's dangerous to accept this conventional wisdom that same-sex marriage rests on the same kind of airy, um, you know, uh, unclear foundation as the right to abortion did. Um, all of the Supreme Court's marriage cases have involved a mix of substantive due process, liberty thinking, and equal protection thinking. I actually argue, and I'm working on a blog post here, you know, hopefully in the next couple of days, it'll make this point exactly. Uh, I think Obergefell is best understood as an equal protection decision, not a substantive due process decision. And that should put it on firmer doctrinal ground than if than a case like Lawrence, which is based on pure notions of liberty and dignity coming out of substantive due process. Uh, do you think the public has a right to be concerned that the opinion was formulated um, maybe on the justice's personal beliefs and religious backgrounds? Um, I, I guess the short answer is yeah. So I, you know, I, there are con law professors who are good friends of mine around the country who um, are, are part of what they call a sort of new legal realism movement. You know, they, they basically say, 
it's all politics. You know, you can predict how Supreme Court justices are going to vote based on who appointed them. And the Supreme, you know, the, the most extreme adherence to this view say, you know, the Supreme Court is not a court. It's essentially just another kind of legislative, a special kind of legislative body. And, and so there are constitutional lawyers and law professors who long ago gave up on the idea that the Supreme Court uh, decisions were about anything much more than the justice's personal preferences. I had always resisted that. I think there, there are those of us who still want to teach our students and believe and cling to the idea that doctrine and arguments and legal reasoning and precedent and evidence matter. And for most cases, I think they do. But when it comes to big constitutional cases, I'm increasingly inclined to think, you know, no, this is this is an activist conservative majority that's going to reshape the law in its own vision. Um, yes, I, I, I do think that's the case. I think it's almost impossible to deny that now. But, you know, on the same by the same token, I would admit that many members of the Warren Court in the 1950s, 60s and 70s were part of a majority that wanted to reshape the law according to their personal political and constitutional values. Um, I, I, what I think we need to give up on is this myth that um, the legal conservatives who have who are in control right now of the court care about judicial modesty or judicial restraint. The only person who believes in that is Justice Roberts, and we can see he's off in a corner by himself. Uh, what are some of the, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what are some of the most common types of laws you'll think we'll see in some of these Republican st uh, states regarding abortion? Yeah, I, that really is, I guess, more a, a, a political question than, than a legal question. I, I would expect the most conservative states will simply ban it altogether. And um, the, the only, uh, you know, I, I think the only thing that they might not be able to do under the new kind of license that Dobbs gives states is uh, to not have an exception for the life of the mother. Um, I, I think that probably is required even under low-level rational basis review. But, but I, I think it will depend on how conservative the state is. Indiana, uh, you know, tends to be conservative. It's not necessarily as deeply red as states like Texas and Oklahoma and Mississippi and Alabama. And so I might expect in Indiana that there will be a shorter period when abortion is possible and more restrictions, but not an outright ban altogether. I, I just think there will be a spectrum um, that, and, and this is gonna, going to depend entirely on the politics of the state and, um, and, 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 and on frankly, um, uh, negotiations between the most conservative Republicans and the just sort of, you know, moderately conservative Republicans. They're the ones who are going to be uh, in control of abortion access in many of these states um, for the foreseeable future. Has there ever been a decision of this magnitude of, of Roe being overturned before? What is something we might compare it to? Well, I, I, again, you know, the, the majority compares itself to uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, outlawing school segregation was indeed a legal earthquake and a, a, a legal milepost, a legal, sorry, what's the word I'm thinking, uh, a, a, a legal milestone, a landmark. Um, the same-sex marriage case was, but what, what so in terms of um, you know, just, just being big and important and making huge changes legally, 
um, you know, Dobbs may be comparable to some of those decisions. The difference is, though, uh, I can't think of any case where the court has, in, in a landmark case or series of cases, um, rolled back and accepted liberty. Now, maybe for those of you, you know, listeners who are con law nerds, if you go back to the, the, the cases that repudiated the Lochner era in the 1930s and 40s, you know, there was a period of several decades when the court very strongly protected economic liberties, freedom of contract and so forth, and then backed away from that and became more open to regulation and laws being made by state legislatures and so forth. There might be an analogy there, but even economic liberties tended to benefit people in their work lives and their business lives. Uh, there's, there, there is no comparison if we're talking about a decision that has pulled back on or eliminated um, a, a deeply personal individual constitutional right. There is no precedent. What's something attorneys and academics should, uh, should know about this opinion they might not be thinking about? Um, I, I think a, a few things. The, the potential for what have been called interjurisdictional conflicts. Um, you know, what happens when a woman wants to travel from a state like Texas or Oklahoma or Indiana, you know, over to an Illinois or a Colorado where abortion is um, going to be remain accessible? Um, will her home state have the power to punish her, prevent her from doing that in some way? What about um, uh, uh, medication abortion drugs that are sent through the mail? Those have the potential to create not only interstate conflicts, but state and federal conflicts, because you've already had the attorney general come out and basically say, because the federal government, uh, the FDA considers those drugs to be safe and effective, um, federal law preempts state law. So I, th I think far from you know settling the question um, as the majority kind of claims to do, um, you know, that this, you know, that you know, Roe's given us nothing but social strife and disagreement, and so we're going to get rid of it. No, I, I think this is, I, I think we're going to see much more strife of these interjurisdictional conflicts. Again, tinkering mischief around contraception, same-sex marriage, laws related to sexuality. I think um, legal and political conservatives will see this as an open door to try lots of new things legislatively. They may not succeed in many or even most of those things, but that's not to say that they won't be keeping the courts busy for the foreseeable future. Absolutely. That'll wrap up this week's episode. Thanks again to our two guests, Notre Dame law professor Rick Garnett and IU Maurer School of Law professor Steve Sanders for joining us. Previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast are available on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service.